I've had occasion to share on this with a lot of different people. I was just thinking when we were talking about the scripture, Jesus said, I have many things to tell you, but you're not yet able to bear it. And there's people I've talked to that can't bear it to this level, that's for sure. But um, I have occasion to go to New Haven, Connecticut and share it there with people at Yale and um, a lot of graduate students. And, you know, you'd think they might be a little intimidating, but uh, I'm more concerned about sharing it today, I, I think, because I want it to... It's just so important. And, um, you know, I don't really have anything that I haven't received. It's really what I've gleaned from Brother Blair's writings, and they're much better or well said in his books, things like um, Culture and Agriculture and uh, Severing the Roots of Unsustainability, which I believe they're probably out here. But that's really where I'm getting everything from, and I'm just synthesizing it in a way that I hope, I hope will make sense. And um, they gave me, there's gonna be a PowerPoint, they gave me this to advance it. They said, I have to point it that way though. I can't point it, I got pointed over there. Okay. And there's also a laser in here too. Okay. <laughs> My, my wife would say, oh no, he's multitasking. <laughs> Everybody watch out. <laughs> Woo! There'll be lasers flashing on the ceiling and all kinds of stuff happening. <laughs> Amen. Um, what I, in a short time, I only have to cover about 6,000 years of history here, so it's going to be kind of compressed. <laughs> but I, I want to I make three points, I think, and... Um, to get, hopefully, to get out of this. One is we're going to, you know, we're titled um, Society, Economy, and Polity. I want to talk about that, and Brother Blair's written about that in one of those books there. But also, how are we doing here? Almost there. Take your time. But, um, you know, the idea that all cultures, all cultures of humankind have a tendency to morph from societies that have an economy and more into a different kind of economy to where they arrived at a polity. And we'll, we'll go over that as soon as we begin this. And to understand that that's kind of inex inexorable. That is going to happen. It will happen to every society to be pulled in that direction. He describes it as a, as a triangular tension that is going to pull societies, and it pulls on our society. The other point I'd like to go into is about simply about myth and about all cultures are subjected to myths or really have underlying myths that we don't live by that we don't understand, and yet they animate us and they, they give us how we work, how we relate, how we live, how we eat, everything, how we educate. There are underlying myths to it, and we want to go through some of those things. And, 
And then I'm going to focus also in the PowerPoint just on about history. If anyone knows me, they'll know I like to talk about history. <laughs> so um, we're going to talk about history. How are we doing? Society, economy, and polity. Here we are. And um, so I have it in a line here, but it's also described as, as a triangle of tension between those things. And individuals in a, in a private association, a society, and we are meant to be a society in the church. And we'll get into the roots of that word. Uh, in a very basic form, society, all the ways in which people voluntarily join themselves together. The private sphere, in the private sphere. And polity on the other end, the rules and institutions that externally govern a culture, the compulsory sphere. Okay? How are we doing? Are we connecting here? There we go. What are the roots of these things? What are the roots of these words? Because we don't go around using the word polity. We, we do say society and economy, but the roots of the word are socius. For society, meaning companions and friends. Are we not that? What's the root of the word companion? With bread? Compan, French word bread today, pan. With bread, we're breaking bread together. So we're a society. We're trying to create a society. And what, what the big question then becomes, does God have a plan? Did he outline something where all the things that we're talking about, he had a plan of how our society should form in, a very, in the material way? What is it supposed to be? Where is it, where is it supposed to be? Where is it supposed to be rooted in? And, and I think that, that he really outlines that. And we're going to go into some script bunch of scriptures on that, and that does God have a particular culture which is said to be our lived religion, okay? How does our religion that we're talking about so much, so much how does it work itself out in our culture, in our relationships, in our work, in our families, in our, in our education, in our occupations? How does that work doesn't matter. Or are we just absorbed into the culture at large, and in that culture, the church exists mixed in there by its paradigms and its myths influencing us? And that's the question here. And so in between that is oikonomia, which in a society, on the small scale of a society, it was meant where people provided for themselves the economy in a society, shelter, clothing. But when this moves beyond subsistence and competition and mimetic rivalry, what's mimetic? Mimesis, a mime, you know, imitating someone else. We're miming, you know, sociologists or they'll say that it's a driving force in society, is mimetic rivalry. They, well, look, they have those shoes. I got to go out and buy those shoes. This drives uh, fashion, is driven by mimetic rivalry. You know, how often do, you know, 
As teenagers, we go out and we have to have the same pain. We have to have that same mimetic rivalry. When mimetic rivalry, rivalry come in, an economy, the amassing of wealth, soon assumes primacy and an end in itself. So let's go on here. Okay, we didn't finish. So economy changes. There was even a different Greek word for economy on that level. It was no longer this relational order of the household as in a society where you're, it's, you're, you're doing things for your needs. You're not amassing wealth. We get started pulling in the direction our society becomes more of an economy. I was just thinking before, wasn't there a president who said, the business of the country is business. What's happened when that happens? How did we start out and how did we wind up and where does God want us to be? As we leave here and we go out and work these things out. So what's at the other end of that is polis. Literally meaning, or polity, literally meaning the city. The polis. Has its root though in polemos, meaning conflict and warfare. Well, how's that? Well, it's saying that as a, an economy grows and people start living their lives for economy, what's got to happen when someone, for example, seizes your energy supply across the globe? Who do we look to to restore the economy that's now defining our lives? And is that where the church should be living? In a place like that? Amen. So, in an economy, people seek wealth and power as the means to provide all purpose, meaning and satisfaction. But this requires power to protect its new status. Where does status come from? Because now status has arisen. Status from status, we get stature, we get the state. Where people are now, instead of in society, seeking relationships of service, but people are now seeking status, okay? You know, I'm sure through everyone's mind, all these things are flying around. Hmm, where do we fit in this? Where are we in this thing? Where is our culture? Where am I living in this thing right now? Where am I positioning? Where are we supposed to be positioned in this? Status, state, where does that come from? Well, it does go back to ancient Rome where they um, were lined up every five years and put in order of your status. In some cultures, that was permanent. That was your status. That's where you were going to remain. So there was this order of people. Do we not have that in our culture, in our American culture, in our Western culture today? And again, everything is kind of American-centric in what I'm saying, but I'm, I'm speaking about Western culture, which is becoming world culture in terms of economy. You know, this is also the culture of the Greeks. Their culture evolved to the point where they went through that, from society to through economy into the state. The highest level they considered in the state was to become a what? Polemos, a warrior. What did they consider all these people around the world and in Greece who had to go out and, the way they saw it, make a living, work the land? 
They had a word for them. They were the idiotes, the idiots. That's how they saw it. And the apotheosis of a person was when they rose to the state of warriorhood. And those cultures couldn't very well stand up against Alexander when he came that were agrarian cultures at that time. To those warriors, freedom wasn't the liberty to participate like we see in the essentials of life and its relationship. It's not living. It became killing. How does that, how do, what does that say for cultures today? How many, how much of our culture has been dominated by economy and inexorably forced toward polity? And we are at a time that is mind-boggling, really, in our history where things are traveling very fast. We, we were talking the other day about that and how things are happening that are just uncontrollable in terms of what we don't see coming. You've all heard maybe the term black swans. I was with some people in New York. We were talking about black swans because um, we were looking at a dairy farm and there was a dairy farm, uh, historic, I do these historic building things, and there's this dairy farm, they're milking 25 cows. The farmer moved across the road. That was built in the 1700s. At the maximum, they were milking 25 cows for their, their family. Now the family's across the highway and they're milking 1,000 cows. Something inexorable happens that we're drawn along in that. So, um, what happens is what is called the modern economy came about at the end of the Middle Ages. And it's when labor became regarded as a commodity. You know, people did not think that way. They weren't thinking that. Let me just go back to black swans. You know, black swan is an event that happens. It came about from the term of there were no black swans, except in Australia. <laughs> um, they, in the 1500s, if you say, oh yeah, that's going to happen when we all see black swans. Well, everyone knows all swans are white. That's never going to happen until a Dutch explorer is going up a river in Australia and he finds a flat flock of black swans. So it took on a whole other meaning of something that is totally unexpected happens. It changes the world. And when we look back on it, we say, well, of course, we should have known that that was going to happen. So what are black swans in history? How about the advent of World War I? It was a black swan. The summer of 1914, they didn't see what was coming, and then it happened. And they looked back, and they said, well, of course, look at the tensions were there. How about the advent of the Internet is a black swan? Who of us would have said, the, you know, in the 1980s, we're going to have this thing called the Internet or cell phones or any of this? I mean, how, how about the breakup of the Soviet Union? Who would have said in 1980, oh, within 12 years, the Soviet Union's going to break up? We would have thought, we, you know, it happened. And, and we didn't see it coming. Who would have thought 9-11 was going to happen? We should have known they had already tried to bomb it. How about the pandemic? Is that a black swan? We really don't see it coming. It changes the world. And we look back and said, we should have known this. And how this person I was with saying, these things are coming in increasing order. 
you know, because he, he said, well, was the pandemic a black swan? Well, yes, it was. But what ones are coming that, that we don't realize? So back to, back to what we're saying. So, um, but also land. Um, land and labor, the modern mass market economy is based on the illusion that land and labor are commodities to be bought and sold and controlled by market forces. Of course. I made an investment in land, you know, and now I'm going to flip it and I'm going to sell it. That is a very foreign idea before modern times. Land is not something produced for sale on a market. Rather, it's something God-given for us. Labor is an activity of human beings. And land can become subdivided nature. So there are very different concepts that we have, that we as moderns take and think of. But how God really had something else planned. I need to move on here because I want to talk in this chart. So, here it is. Society, socius. Here we go. They say, I can use this thing. Friends and companions. A society is private. It's the realm of the private where the polity, the state, is the realm of the public. Society is diverse. Even in its agriculture, it's diverse and simplified. Whereas in, the, in under polity, it becomes specialized and status, like we said, competition, mimetic rivalry, drive, drive it. So what I'm saying here is a course that all society, culture, societies will be pulled into, that we're pulled into, and we're defining this to see and say, well, where, where, do, we, where do we fall, you know? Uh, do I have a specialized job? You know, the idea of specialization, that's a modern idea and a very foreign idea. How, how often do we specialize in our jobs? You know, the family, the modern family wakes up in the morning, mom goes here, dad goes there, kids go to this school, they have this friend. Uh, the father specializes in this work. How is that different? And what does that do to a family and ultimately to a community and a society that we're trying to form? How does that affect us in this in this specialized culture that we're sucked into. Okay, a few things about it. Production in a society is for use needs, handcrafted for subsistence. It's local and sustainable. That's what we're talking about in our crafts, right? Local, you hear these terms now, local, sustainable. It's not production for profit, gain, wealth. Mass production for the, pro, for, the, uh, for the market. It is global and it is unsustainable. We're going we're gonna to move on to that. How did, how did we get the, here from there? And where are we supposed to be going to? What are we going to try to create in our economy? Are we going to try to recreate an economy in the church? I think so. Isn't that incredible? Aren't we going to try to pull us back, if we've gone outside of it, back into a society? Because a society, most of all, is voluntary, personal, 
relational authority, okay, of wholeness. Whereas that polity, it's a mirror of our culture today, Western culture. It is compulsory. It is anonymous authority, and it is fragmenting in a way that we all know is at warp speed here. Culture is fragmenting. I was just, well, I just, I had said the other day, visiting two counties in New York State that were the highest welfare counties, two of the three, two of the three highest welfare counties, and the culture is in a free fall. Their society has morphed into a polity, and the government comes to control everything. Are we going to halt that inexorable movement that way? Are we going to try to? And that brings us, you know, just want to go back to go to myth now. What I said, and, you know, I think Brother Dan quoted maybe Ernest Becker saying, culture constitutes an invisible project. We don't know why this happens. We kind of roll along with the culture. It's an invisible thing to us. What, what does it come? It's, it's myth. Anthropologists will say that cultures live by myths. What does that mean? What is a myth? Now, we're not talking about myth in the in sense of mythology, but we're talking about the sense of the root of the word myth and that it comes from the word muo, meaning that which is hidden to the eyes. And they say, no matter how much you think you know where you're coming and why you're doing the things you do and why you get up in the morning and go to this job and do all most everybody everywhere does not know what lies behind why we do the things we do and where these things came from. They're animating our lives and our careers and our families and how we, how we put these things together. Myth, that which is hidden to the eyes. You know, I, I think of... Um, I think of myths, and now I've got to go into architecture because I like architecture, and you got to give me a, a second of architecture, but you know, there are, there are Western myths, there's American myths, there's myths in all cultures, and God wants to open our eyes to the myths and help us to see, and so much of what Brother Blair has really written has been to expose the root myths that we live by, and how did we get here? And really, what is then our motives for doing things? And we can examine them and say, well, is that supposed to be part of the church or are we just being pulled along in those things? Oh, look at that little house. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> See, architecture had to pop up in here. I think about myth. That's a little project we just did. It's really a medieval house. Plop down in New England. Uh-oh, he's getting off. <laughs> he's multitasking. <laughs> we just did that. We moved it from Connecticut to uh, Idaho. Look at that. 20 feet, 25 feet by 30 feet, a little colonial house. I'm thinking about the myths of America. Now think about this. People are living in these little tiny medieval on their homesteads. And then we moved a few miles away, and we looked at another house from about 40 years later. That house. 
what happened? <laughs> 1820, 1825. What happened? What a, <laughs> we just came out of the medieval period. We, we just leapt back into the classical period of Greek architecture. What happened to America? What was inspired? Do you think they knew? I just really liked that. I, you know, honey, build me a house. Can you put some of those columns on it like our neighbor down the street? Now, that's really the, that's the latest thing. I just really want some of those fluted columns and, and this house for our new farmhouse. And You know, what was animating people? I'm talking about myths now. I'm just giving an example of myths. Or this guy. That's one of the kids born at that time. His father's name was like Abraham. Let's call him Ulysses. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was, what was going on with these people? How about this? He became this. That's him as president of the United States. What, is, what was taking place in the 19th century? And that's what we're going to talk about. It's fascinating. We're going to get into how that happened. But what's taking place? Is that somehow mirrored in other things? Look at that, would you? <laughs> what is going on here? Well, let's go back and look at their religion real quick. Now, they're coming over to the Americas, fleeing to the Americas like New England. There are these Calvinists with a lot of imbalances becoming Puritans. Who are Puritans? They're separatists coming over. They're... Uh, before long, a century goes by and they're Congregationalists. The Congregation is now what? As a Congregationalist, they're choosing their ministers. They're becoming a democracy, kind of, in the 1700s. And then in the 1800s, when this stuff's architecture starts happening, they start becoming Unitarians. Wow, they're changing. Is this somehow affecting these underlying things, then they become universalists. This is going up. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the transcendentalist, a Unitarian minister, denying the deity of Jesus in the 1800s. What's going on at the same time was this, what Brother Blair called the tsunami of the Industrial Revolutionist hit. Bringing what? Specialization to all life. Think about this. Do you think they're thinking this? They're not thinking this. They're just kind of going along. You know, Congress goes and gets this artist, Brumidi, from Italy. He's working at the Vatican, by the way. And they bring him over and they said, would you paint a picture for us of, of American culture today? And he gets up there and he paints Washington. It's called, what did he call it? The apotheosis of Washington at that time in the 1800s. I mean, wow. He's sitting surrounded by liberty, wearing the red cap with the falco pill, the red cap, which was the symbol of the freed Roman slave. And where do they paint this? Let's paint this in the rotunda of the Capitol in Washington. And what's, what, is it, what is the underlying myths of our culture going on here? And at the same time, I mean, that's pagan. That is polytheism. Kind of like the plurality of specialization that's also happening in people's lives. Does anyone make the connection that I'm now in the factory? 
I used to be on a farm where I did a, something of everything sustainably. I was once in a society, and now I have completely morphed into working in a factory. And all I do is this job, and I get a vacation. Thousands of people are moving. America the century before, 2% of Americans were not on the farm. One in 10 Americans lived in a town of a thousand or more. That's it. But this enormous change is taking place, like a tidal wave, changing society, morphing it into a polity. And is it any wonder why the polity is so absorbed in mythology and, and uh, classical thinking and, and imitating it? So let's go back. Let's go, let's, let's roll back now. Everybody with me? You like history? Is there a reason why at the garden certain things happened? This is incredible. What is going to be our vision of an alternative culture? Because, you know, we're going to follow through here. We're going to see how this is all handed down to us how we live. It is the culture that we are situated in. How does it affect us when we wake up in the morning and the kids go off to school and my wife goes to a job, her job, and relates to other people and I go off to my job and I'm a specialist. I just do this type of machining and, you know, and, uh, you know we're a fragmented culture, a modern culture radically different than anything ever seen in the history of the world before. Society has been driven by economy, and what's happening also, we're morphing toward a polity, a bigger and bigger government, okay? You know, when Jefferson got to become president, the third president, he got to Washington, and he was aghast. There were... 132 federal employees. It had gotten completely out of hand, and the federal budget was $5 million. We had completely, things were coming unglued to him. So, but we're going back to Genesis. Yahweh formed man of the dust of the ground. Adam, Adama, the soil. Why? Right from the beginning. Is there something in these beginning scriptures, I'm asking, that gives us some kind of guidelines of what kind of culture we want to create? Adam, Adama, the soil, the color red. Then what happens? Genesis 2 and 8. Yahweh planted a garden east of Eden. God planted the first garden. What was he up to? Why did he do that? He placed the first man, oh, Genesis 2 and 15. Yahweh took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. Isn't that just wonderful? You know, I mean, what a setting. You know, there's no death there. It's, it's just a wonderful thing. Does this have something to do with the plan that God had for man? That he's putting him in a garden. He planted the garden, but we know what happens. Is he saying that somehow man's spiritual destiny would always be bound up in the land? 
is there something more to this? So, we know what happens. Satan comes, tempts them, they eat the fruit, and God drives them from that garden. It's over, the garden's done, we're off the land, we're, we're going into something else. No, listen, Genesis 3, 17, 19. God said to the man and woman, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, Adam. Since you were taken from it, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. A curse. That's a curse. Was there a purpose in that curse by any chance? Something we may not see? Was there a purpose that God was saying, you know, Something's gone very wrong here, but I'm still connected. I still want you to be connected to that ground, to that land. Could that be? And I want you to work it out in this world now that death has come into. Because things are going to happen to you positively. Through, if you'll just submit yourself to this curse, if you go work that ground by the sweat of your brow, it's going to bring you, back, you and me back together again. Okay? It's going to drive you back to me. It sounds like a curse, but was it? It would teach people that, the, what? They are not God. And that was the problem, wasn't it? How does it teach someone to do that, that you're not God? Think about it. Think about all the things we control. We're controlling the climate in here, the lights. We're controlling cities. We're controlling everything. How is that... Did you ever control a freeze or the rainfall or a tornado or a hurricane or a drought? Can't be done. Doesn't a connection with the land put us in a place where we've got to look up? Was it meant to tell, you're not God. You do not control these things. Amen. So let's go on. So let's, let's see what happens. Oh, I miss, let me see if I can go back. Of course, well, we were in the garden. We're out of the garden. And you know who to, these, the, son, the sons of Adam and Eve. Okay? What is going to happen now? All right, the curse. This is what you're going to do. You're going to till the earth. And that's going to bring you back into a relationship. Somehow is that word no longer applicable to us. We're moderns, you know. That just doesn't apply anymore. Things have gone on from there. We don't have to do that. But is there some way in which even today, if we submit ourselves to that curse, is, some, is, is it a place where it facilitates our relationship with God and he's going to use it to bring us back to him? Because we say, you know, this might, you might have heard this, that we are an agrarian community. What does that mean? We began in the city, and but what does it mean, okay? So, who is this? This is Cain and Abel. What does Cain mean? Metalsmith. How interesting. He's a metalsmith. Are two cultures, is this the genesis in these two brothers of two cultures that are going to arise and define civilization down through history. Are there going to be two parallel cultures 
one of which is becoming God, trying to, and the other of which will submit to that curse and want to be restored to God. Let's follow it, okay? So, Cain becomes a metalsmith. What does he do? He murders his brother. Interestingly, he leaves, and what does he then do? He built the first city. How curious. He's a murderer, and he built the first city. Hmm. His name means metalsmith. The book of Enoch tells us about the key role of metallurgy and its connection with the rise of ancient cities and the Apocrypha. The metallurgists showed the children of the people how to make weapons of death, such as the shield and the sword for warfare. What does that take us back to? Maybe the idea of polity and polemos warfare? Are they somehow connected that the descendants of Cain and the followers of Cain are in building cities and that they're connected? Let me jump way forward. Is there any connection to metallurgy in modern culture and industrialization? And is not that the beginning of technology at that time? Where this one of the brothers departs and becomes a metalsmith. And all historians will tell you it had everything to do with setting up trade routes, specialization in societies. So we see two parallel kingdoms going out. They're, 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 they're starting at the very beginning. And how are all civilizations that arise after them, how do they fit into these paradigms? I mean, where, where do we fit into that and where do we belong? So he goes out and, and makes weapons of warfare. And he, found, he, he founds the first city. I'd interestingly jump forward and say that silicon is also a metalloid. How interesting technology. Is the rise of our technology today at the root of these two brothers? Like in the word techni? Isn't that the word the Greeks used for Ulysses? And it meaning crafty? What do they call him? Shifty Crafty was his name, Ulysses. And how Ulysses was the model, the paradigm for all Greek boys to grow up and become warriors. And what is the Hebrew word? Now the Greek is techni, from which we get technology. What is the Hebrew word, going back, that translates and says, now the serpent was more crafty than all the beasts of the field? Is there a connection in that, with that whole culture? Is there something crafty about that culture? The rise of Ulysses, sacrificing his fellow countrymen to advance his image of himself. Amen. Think of how all these things work down through history. Well, we know that's over with. You know, I mean, the flood came. It was done. God destroyed the earth because of that very kind of stuff, and it's over, and Noah starts it all up again. He starts it all up again, and what returns? Who takes Cain's place? 
eight people, and Nimrod came along. He refounded this specialized urban culture. How about this? Genesis 10, 8. Nimrod became a mighty warrior of the earth. It is happening all over again. In this whole new recreate, this, it's coming here. It's inexorable. This thing is not going to be stopped because it's mankind still wanting to ascend to godhood. Goes on, Genesis. He was a mighty hunter of rabbits. No. He was a mighty hunter of men. A city builder like Cain, the first center of his kingdom, included Babylon. He was a city founder. Isn't it just like Cain? What does, name, what does Nimrod's name mean? We shall rebel. <laughs> Woo! Against what? The curse? What God told them? This is how I want you to come back to me. I want you to be connected to the land. There are lessons in the land that you can learn. How about this? This is also from Jubilees. The Jewish book of Jubilee tells the underlying spiritual dynamic of this rebellious urban order that founded Babylon and the Tower of Babel where they could what? make a name for themselves, right? The sons of Noah fought in order to take, sons of Noah, this is after the flood, in order to take captive and to kill each other, to build fortified cities so that one man would be raised up over the people, to set up the first kingdoms, status, states. Remember what we're talking about? Through polemos, warfare, to go to war, people against people and nation against nation and city against city. Motivating those engaging in this great rebellion were, quote, cruel spirits that assisted them and led them astray. This is a battle going on. This, this is where all civilization and mankind is heading. Then they said, come let us build a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. They were escaping this very thing, right? And you know, there's something, though, that happens. When people find themselves in, caught in this tension between moving toward a polity out of a society and economy dominating their lives, in some people, something rises up that says, I have got to get out of here, and I have got to return to a society. Like whom? Abraham, to his father, who went to Haran. We've got to get out of here. God telling him, get out of there. Get out of that Babylonian city, Babylon, founded by Nimrod. Get out of there. I want you to do what? A very educated man, apparently. I want you to do what? Become a shepherd in this land that I am going to take you to. To Abraham, he said, I will establish an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Then what's he going to say then? The whole land of Canaan I will give you as an everlasting possession. 
He connected his covenant back with Abraham saying, now listen, we're going to get you back to the land, okay? Because we're going to do something with you on the land, all right? And then, of course, Egypt. They're in Egypt. And God calls them out. Wherever people have felt that tension, there are a lot of other people that felt that. Did not the Jews in Germany leave there and in Europe and say, we've got to go back to the land before the coming Holocaust, before the advent of World War II? What did they take up? Were they farmers? Not at all. Didn't they get together in Zionist organizations and start teaching themselves again how to farm and pull out of the, their city culture that they had become so accustomed to? Didn't they go back to the land and specifically farm it? Didn't they go back and set up towers and fence them off and start kibbutzes that were agrarian communities? This has happened through history. In Europe, didn't the Scots-Irish come over, 100,000 of them, wanting to get away from that city culture of Europe? Throughout history, people have gotten away by making an exodus. They've made a choice between those two flows of civilization, which one they're going to choose. Now, I want to go, I want to just go into the PowerPoint part of this. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's talk about Babylon real quick because God sent them to Babylon and why? They went down into captivity. He was angry with them and their unfaithful stewardship of what? The land. Second Chronicles 36. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. They went into captivity because of what they did to the land. They farmed it when it was supposed to be under a Sabbath rest. God is still connecting them to the land. All the time of its desolation it rested until 70 years were completed. So for 490 years they had abused the land and God said, well, now that's how many years you missed 70 Sabbaths, and now you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. What's the connection he's making? But he told them. He didn't totally sever their relationship with the earth. He told them, now you get down there, and you do what? Submit to the Babylon. No, no. He said, you get down there, and you plant gardens and eat from them. Isn't that incredible? Connecting them to the land in that way? Amen. So let's go on here. Now we're going we're gonna to talk about, well, there's old Nimrod. The Tower of Babel, let me get caught up here. And those civilizations that arose were people made exoduses out of. Abraham, Israel coming out of Egypt. Now we're coming up to something different, kind of a culmination of this in the modern era. I love not having a microphone. I can, I can walk and I can talk. And... Anyway, you with me? Uh, the age of exploration, because something is going to come together now, not in this civilization that rises and falls and that civilization throughout history and all. Something of a more permanence is going to happen that we're part of, okay?
And the story has not fully been told. We're here to live it out. And we're here to see where are we going with this thing. Okay, and I'm going to move along here. The age of exploration and colonization. So the medieval period comes to an end. The church is sunk down into the dark ages and the Reformation comes. But on the other hand, that other kingdom is going along too. In what? Like the Renaissance? The Renaissance? The rebirth? The rebirth of what? That whole other culture, you know? And now they're, now they're reaching out from Europe and exploring the world. The age of exploration, you know, Columbus, all these things are going on. They're going around the Horn of Africa. What is driving the, that age? Now, again, we had that inexorable economy come along. Economy is driving them. Now, a Christianizing is taking place to an extent too, but it's going around the world. This is incredible. Economy is taking over in this, in this societies in Europe. And there are all these different nations wanting to grab a piece of this pie, okay? So what happens is things happen like they go around the world and they, you know, uh, in Malaysia, they, they discover this little... The Portuguese explorers do. They've rounded the Horn of Africa and they're going along. This might be the end of history. And they find this thing called nutmeg. Oh, a little deal. Well, you could invest in a cargo of nutmeg. We're sending a ship from Portugal there and you can make 10,000% profit on your money if you give it to us. So what is happening? Specialization is taking place technology, the ships to go around the world. That whole other kingdom is advancing now, okay? Headed toward the modern era. You can make 10,000%. It's the only place this stuff grows in the world. So this economy is fired up in Portugal. They've got the nutmegs and they're selling them for a fortune. The spice trade is opening up. Marco Polo, all these things are happening. And then England says, you know, let's go seize it. Let's do a little polemos here. Actually, I think the Dutch said it first. Let's go seize it from the Portuguese. Going here, you're going to need a state. You're going to need a polity to protect it, right? That's happening all over Europe, and all these nation states are rising. Well. We get up into the 1600s and William and Mary here, they're king and queen of England. All this is going on, they seize the Banda Islands. All this is going on around the world. They're seizing colonies around the world, these powers. Because this is how it's playing out because everything is headed toward an economy and you need a big polity. Their polity was destroyed. They lost the Royal Navy in a war with the Dutch. And here they are. They're saying, what are we gonna do now? We have to, we're, a, we're an island nation. We need to rebuild uh, our navy. And we have no money to do it. What are we going to do? We only have taxation. You know, we get taxes in from the people, but they're we're really a country of the yeoman farmers and they don't pay much tax. And we don't have the money to, we've gotta come up with a scheme here. Let's found a bank, the Bank of England. Second oldest bank in the world, still in existence. 
and let's do this thing. That's what the Joel was saying. It's really a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> you give us your money and we'll pay you interest on it. It was. That's exactly what they did. They created the bond market. Never heard of before. They started issuing bonds. You give us, a, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open this bank. Everybody, you give us 100 pounds, we will pay you 6% interest in perpetuity to you. And we're going to come up with capital in a big way. And you're going to be paid continually at 6% because we're collecting taxes. We have a source of income from taxes, and that's just enough to pay you guys off. And then I think in a week, they raised 12 million pounds. And they rebuilt the British Navy. And they, they, they pushed their country to ascendancy as ruling the seas in doing that. And all other countries saw this and said, wow, let's get on board. Let's found a bank. So what's happening? They're marrying to polity economy. Okay, now we're describing what's happening in the modern world. We're talking about what is the myth behind our bonds and things? What are the myths behind why we, how did we get, we're talking about how did we get to where we are today and working our jobs in this modern and global economy? I'm going to, we're talking about how we got there now, okay? So what, what, what was before then? They had little, you know, the Industrial Revolution had not hit yet. This is the 1600s, entering into the 1700s and it hadn't hit. There were local shops. There's still a local economy. People are at home, you know, uh, starting to specialize in what they're doing. You know, this is where we're going to head very quickly. And you know how we're going to get there? Because we're going to go. I've got an idea for a loom, okay? But I don't have the money to do it. But you know who's got the money is the Bank of England. They've raised a lot of money. And I'm going to go to them. I'm going to get a loan, capital loan. So modern banking has been invented, okay? Here we go. Now, there's a little hang-up in that, in that in the 1500s, uh, Britain is becoming, and other countries are becoming these exporters to their colonies. They, they want to export manufactured goods to colonies, to the Americas, to around the world, to India, you know, uh, Portugal, Spain, Germany, all these countries are, are gaining colonies around the world. Well, in England, something happens where they say, you know, we really need more fibers. You know, we can export clothes. We can, we can manufacture clothing for the colonies. They're, they're our market. So the whole mercantile system is born. But you know what? There's really an ancient system, a medieval system on the land of nobles and these you know, people living on the land, we got to get them off the land because we got to put, we got to put sheep on the land. So they passed some laws, the, um, I'm drawing a blank, brothers. The Clo Enclosure Act. They enclosed the lands. Now, this is going to fit very well in this industrial model that's coming along. Okay, the Enclosure Act. There's the sheep. Let's enclose the, the ancestral lands of all these peasants li living under the local noblemen in, in all these different places in Britain. And Europe. Let's enclose the land. Let's get them off the land. The Duchess of Sutherland throws 15,000 people off the land, moves in uh, 130,000 sheep. Here they come. And the people are thrown off the land. I mean, they're losing where they had been for centuries working the commons. 
the commons are enclosed. What do you mean commons? Well, that doesn't belong to you anymore. Get out. Well, now, hold on now. We've always farmed this land down through the, you know, through hundreds of years. And, you know, and where do they go? They're thrown off the land by the thousands and thousands, and they drift towards cities. They become paupers. And then arising at the same time, they go to places like London. That's London Bridge. Whose heads do you think are on pikes on London Bridge? The paupers who want to move into the cities. They have nowhere else to go. So this tremendous crisis arises. Now something is going to be waiting for them in the, in the, 18, in the 1700s. Factories. You can go to the factory and get a job. So your life, you've been lifted out of your society and you can go find a place as a specialist in a factory. Isn't that where we talked about how when economy comes to dominate, it's moving people en masse into cities. Is this happening? Does it happen today? Do you know there's a movement in China now of 250 million people going on. It's the largest movement of mankind in the history of the world, underway over five years now. It's supposed to end in 2026 where a quarter of a billion people are being moved from small local holdings of farms into new cities in China for the express purpose of creating consumers in the cities. This is a dynamic still at work. You know, that's like moving almost every person in the United States off of a farm and into a brand new built city. That's what's going on now in the world. This, this same movement is happening. People are being uprooted from their small holdings. Remember Brother DK telling me, didn't your grandparents have a small farm of two or three acres, I think? A small, self-sufficient farm. We'll talk a little bit about, about that soon. But they also vote with their feet. They say, we're out of here. We're going to make an exodus. We see what the, our government is doing allied with what's called the macro-parasitic elite, the mercantile, the merchants, colonizing the world. We are getting out of here. You know, we're going to leave Scotland. Matter of fact, I will indenture myself for seven years to anyone who will take me just to get me out of this country. I'll go to Pennsylvania. You know, Penn wants to put us up against the Iroquois to fight them. I'll do anything. Get me out of here. I'll get on a ship and go across... And what's going on, though, but Polemos? At the same time, what is happening in Europe? The, the governments, they're arguing about these colonies and these markets because economy has come to dominate everything. There's the Seven Years' War is going on over there. It's, it's involving all these different countries, of Germany through Austria, I believe Italy, Spain, France, England. They're all fighting over colonization. They're fighting over money because it's dominating their society. And the war's over. The Seven Years' War is over, and at the end of it, Britain says, we won the war. Matter of fact, we got all of Canada from the French. They, they ceded all of that to us. Uh, did we get South Africa before that? Britain did from the Dutch. And, you know, but the thing is, who's going to pay for this thing? Well, you know, we really did this for the colonists. Let's, let's charge them for it. You know, the, it's only right that they pay for part of this. You know, let's, let's tax things like tea, you know. 
And they did. We know what happens. We know the story. It led to the things like a revolt. Because those people in the new world and all over the world, they said, we know what they're doing. They're, they're going to impose the very system of economy that we have tried to escape. I came all the way over here. I served for seven years as an indentured servant. I got my freedom from that. And if you think I'm going to let you come over here and now control my life from across the ocean, I'm not going to let that happen. I don't want that to happen. I don't want your whole system of government and warfare, unending warfare, unending boom and bust, moving us off of our land. I've got my land here. I don't want that. So what happens? They revolt. They revolt. The American Revolution comes. There are a lot of imbalances. These two men represent two sides that were embedded in the revolution. Those, it's really those two kingdoms going on. Who are they? Does any, just raise your hand if you know who they are. Anyone know who they are? Oh, look at this. Folks know who they are. They're on the currency. Honestly, I did that at Yale, and they said, I said, who are they? Who are they? Not one person knew. I said, they're on the currency. They're both on bills. No one knew. But someone stood up and said, you called them the founding fathers. They didn't like the patriarchal reference I made. They were very upset with me for saying founding fathers, but they didn't know who these people were. So, whoever raised their hand, we have a diploma for you at the back door. <laughs> You're a graduate now of Yale, and uh, it's going to cost you $300,000, but you get a piece of paper, okay? <laughs> Attesting to your brilliance. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Jefferson, TJ, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton. You talk about rough politics today. What happened to Hamilton? Jefferson's vice president shot him in a duel and killed him. Things were a little tough back then, a little raucous. Our politics, we think, are kind of raucous, but they're representing two different, two different things, really those two kingdoms. You know, Hamilton's the first secretary of the treasury, and he's thinking, you know, we just won this revolution. We got Britons out of here, but why don't we create that system again over here? You know, he, find, he founds the American Society of Manufacturers in Patterson, New Jersey at the Great Falls. And, and they're going to start manufacturing some things. Jefferson says, you know, really, there has got to be manufacturing, yes. And they're very, they're, both sides are very imbalanced. But he's saying, really, America's strength is in this 90% agrarian economy that we have. Free landholders, you know, they're living in a society. They're not producing an excess for market economy. Matter of fact, some people today, like Alan Carlson, said they, they only had to work like 30 or 40 days a year to produce what they needed to eat. They produced a little, but they also couldn't even get it to a market. They were so, they were so far out there in the wilderness. They say about the Scots-Irish, a book I read, if a neighbor moved within five miles, it was much too close. <laughs> Whoa. So, Hamilton founds the, the Bank of America, you know, under, Je under Washington's administration. And everybody sees this and says, we know where this is going. 
you know, this is going to fuel an industrial economy. We have people like, well, corporate capital and the industrial revolution is finding its way across the Atlantic and coming to the Americas now, which was a colony that just produced for really the British mercantile system. But now after the revolution, people like this man, Samuel Slater, escapes England. What do you mean escapes? He knew how to build a fabric mill, a knitting mill. If you knew how to build a knitting mill, you were forbidden to leave England. He escapes with him the plans to build a mill. He comes to Rhode Island and builds the first knitting mill in America. It's coming. The industrialization is coming. It's inexorable. The march toward economy. There it is. The 1800s. Different machines sequenced to perform specific tasks require both a division of labor and specialized skills. What is that? What we talked about before, about really living a polytheism, the specialization of the gods. Remember what Paul said about the gods? For indeed there are many gods though they are not gods at all, but demons. America's own Eli Whitney, 1792, visits a plantation in Virginia and invents the cotton gin, which wasn't a very good cash crop. You had to pick the seeds out. It was, it wasn't, it was, hard, to, it was hard to deal with. And yet, when he invented the cotton gin, it gave rise to the cotton economy. By the advent of the Civil War, 80% of America's exports were cotton. Can you imagine a crop dominating the entire economy? But to have cotton like that and export it to the factories of the world, you're gonna have to increase slavery from 1790 to 1860. That's how the, the Industrial Revolution expanded slavery in America. But the wars are going on in Europe. Again, they're still fighting over things. The war in the early 1800s, the Napoleonic Wars at the time. Jefferson sees that, and now he's president. 1800 became president, and he says, I don't want anything to do with that. This is the very thing we're getting away from. Let's embargo. Let's just cut off all trade with those people. Let's separate ourselves. He closed all American ports. This is it. Let's close it down. How do you think those New Englanders took to this Virginian Jefferson? Not real well, because they're the merchants. They're starting to build their clipper ships and travel the world. They didn't like that. So America enters the War of 1812 with Britain, something we wanted to stay out of. And we're marching through American history here. And what comes along again but the Bank of America? And the bank, its charter had expired and they got rid of it after Hamilton's dead. They got rid of it. And it comes back leading up to Jackson's administration. He was a real populist from the frontier from Tennessee. And uh, this man Biddle becomes president of it. And once again, it's rising up to fund people like Samuel Colt for Polemos at that very city that Hamilton founded. His first revolver was called the Patterson from Patterson, New Jersey. 
So this industrial machine, it is heating up. And it is drawing people out of their societies on the frontier and bringing them into cities, bringing them into factories. Then we're going to need common schools for everybody. Do you see what's happening? That whole factory system, economy, is starting to take over. What was 90% agrarian lives? This is fading away very quickly. Industrialism is hitting. The small local shops are giving away to factories, to foundries, and they're producing goods. What was once produced on small scale in local economies, relationally, in homes for the home, that's going away. And now goods are being produced. What is that going to require? It's going to require an economy of consumers in cities. It's going to require trade routes, and it's going to require capital. It's going to require that whole other system. But the little problem, we can't get there. Everyone's settling across the mountains here into the Ohio Valley. We've got 2,000-mile-long stretch of mountains, 200 miles wide, impassable. So we need another revolution. Well, they come up with another revolution right away. They came up with the transportation revolution. We've got to get goods from these wonderful factories. You know, Sam Slater's producing shirts like you wouldn't believe, but we can't get them to the people over the mountain. They can't get their goods to market on the East Coast. What are we going to do? A transportation revolution. The age of canals. New York State goes to the federal government, would you fund this canal we want to put to the Great Lakes and open up the whole Midwest? Governor Clinton George Clinton of uh, New York. And, the, and uh, President Madison says, the Congress passes it, and Madison vetoes it. And said, it's not the job of the federal government to build roads. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> That's not constitutional. We can't do that. I, I veto that. Clinton goes home and says, okay, we'll do it. We're going to raise the money ourselves, and they do. The engineering feat of the century, they build a canal 363 miles long. What is the effect of that canal? Grain costs 80 cents a bushel before the canal to bring it to market in the east. No, it's not going to work. You're an isolated farmer in the interior. After the canal opens that year, it drops to 5 cents a bushel. Ah, we now have a system of economy. We, are now, we now have the, the roads coming across, across the state. Don't you like those Roman cities? Carthage, Syracuse, Troy. <laughs> That's the cities they're founding, because it's happened at that same time that I told you about, 1825, that house was built. Founding Carthage, Rome, Syracuse, Troy. <laughs> what is good? Utica. What's happening? The coming of the railroads right on the heels or simultaneously with the canals? And everything in a short period. Now, a short period of time, we're talking like the 1840s, 1850s, and where we are today, gives rise to this. The internal combustion engine. In a short amount of time, my grandfather was born, who I grew up with, before any cars were around ever. He was born in 1886. I mean, there were no cars around. And he lived to see men land on the moon. Gives rise to this before long. 
This thing is proceeding exponentially fast. I better get moving. I'm looking up here. <laughs> Ships giving rise to this. In not many decades, this is happening. This is an incredible transformation of economy, but of society is going on. How about the little local economies of bartering and trading and the market system comes along. Now farmers are producing for the market for the first time. They had never done that. You now have farmers who are monocroppers. You have dairymen who go to the market and buy their milk <laughs> is what's happening. And the industrialization of agriculture is happening. in all things. And what is it driven by? In energy? Pretty quick transformation. This man on the right from Greenville, New York, goes to Pennsylvania, digs an oil well in 1848. You know, within about a hundred, you know, within 12 or 13 decades, we've got that. What an incredible transformation this is taking to economy. And, and polity. We've shifted away from society. Unlimited natural resources, as far as you can see, just have at it. <laughs> Look at that. Those guys are pretty brave, aren't they? <laughs> Look at them. So, what's happening? Fossil fuels, fueling an entire economy on a, a finite resource. Look at the curve. Just watch the curve. The curve's going up. From, from the 1800s, it's, it's climbing up. Watch this curve. Population, hmm, same curve going up. Urbanization, same curve climbing. This is what's happening. Nine, in uh, 2007, for the first time in the history of the world, Half the world's population lives in urban centers. First time in the history of the world that's happened. Then you have laws coming along because the polity is protecting these things. Explain it quickly is that I've got a great idea and you've got money. I go to you and you say, would you lend me some money? I've got this great idea to produce this product. Well, I'd lend it to you except... If you get in trouble with that, it's going to jeopardize my whole estate if we get sued for something. Well, let's pass an amendment that we can form a corporation. Okay, now there were corporations before of limited duration, but still the stockholders were responsible for what happened. Let's do something entirely different. How about we pass this other law, the 14th Amendment? And it's guaranteeing to people uh, that no one can pass a law, deny any person with its, in its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. You know, that's right after the Civil War. It sounds like it's all about civil rights, right? Well, is there something else at work? And that after the Civil War, this thing's passed and it's applied to equal protection of corporations? How that? Did they think of that? Were they planning it that way? Now we can form an LLC. 
a limited liability. I'll lend you that million dollars because that's it. You know, you go lose that, it's not going to touch my other 10 million. Limited liability. I don't have liability. That corporation, it stands on its own. It can't come after me. Limited liability. Based on what? An amendment passed for civil rights? The rise of the conflicts with labor. Capital being concentrated in the hands in the Gilded Age of, of a few people is happening. You know, the Andrew Carnegie's and the, the, the Rockefellers and people. And is that any different today? What is it? 60% um, of the wealth of the country is in the hands of 10% of the people. Has that changed? The rise of labor conflicts. Here they are, people trapped in economy. And we know what it gives way to. Factory living, specialization, moving people, the Lowell girls, moving them into, into factories. Mining boys in England. And of course, if something attacks the energy source for your, for your economy, your polity has got to step in, travel around the world, and defend it. A new post-industrial world. You know, that I showed you those pictures of the child labor and everything, but you know, we've gotten beyond that. You know, we've cleaned up our act and... You know, now it's wonderful. I can still buy this shirt for what I bought it for in 1970. You know, I mean, things have changed. Or have they? Have we outsourced, simply outsourced it all to other places? So where do we stand in all this kind of stuff? What are we going to do? Are we part of this global thing that's, I mean, how about we take it a step further? How about into the digital age? How about to robotics that are coming? Like three and a half million truck drivers will be losing their jobs soon for driverless trucks? There's one driverless truck. How about in agriculture? They just raised the first crop three years ago in Britain, untouched by human hands. Robotics. You know, let's do away with this drudgery of agriculture. We've all heard that word. You can stay at home in your apartment and start your tractor up, open the door, 100 miles away and run your farm. What happened to that curse? The world's giant tech companies are taking, are, read about that. Can I read something? Can I have that? This is my last point and I'm done. I just read, I'll read it to you from their own lips, from their own words. The Harvard Business Review, four years ago. Things have gotten a little further down the road, folks. 
Here it is. They call it the hub economy. The global economy is coalescing around a few digital superpowers. We see unmistakable evidence that a winner-take-all world is emerging in which a small number of hub firms, including Alibaba, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft, and Tencent, occupy central positions while creating real value for users. These companies are also capturing a disproportionate and an expanding share of the value that's shaping our collective economic future. The very same technologies that promise to democratize business and put our little companies before the world are now threatening to become more monopolistic. Is that where we're headed? Listen to this. The more users who join these networks, the more attractive and even necessary it becomes for enterprises to offer their products and services through them by driving increasing returns to scale and controlling crucial competitive bottlenecks, these digital superpowers can become even mightier, extract disproportionate value, and tip the global competitive balance. This is where it's going. This is economy. If the current trend continues, the hub economy will spread across more industries. They're not just going to be in the computer world. Further concentrating data and value and power in the hands of a small number of firms employing a tiny fraction of the workforce. Then they go on to describe they're going to invade the auto industry, which the money in autos is no longer in the, in the machine. It's in the fact that we're going to have driverless cars and you're going to have people an hour, two hours a day sitting in their cars going online. Who's going to control that? Can these trends be reversed? What does Harvard Business School come up with? We believe not. Just a little more and I'm done. While value is being created for everyone, value capture is getting more and more skewed and concentrated in the big companies. Where will they turn next, the, the powerful technology hub firms, healthcare, industrial products, and agriculture is where they're headed to take over. They have the power to do that. For existing auto manufacturers, manufacturers, the picture is grim. Then they finally conclude with this. They say, Hub firms have become de facto stewards of the long-term health of our economy. Because we're living for economy now. All actors in the economy, but particularly the hub firms themselves, this is their conclusion, what has to happen, should work to sustain ethical reasons for what they do. Otherwise, we are all in serious trouble. <laughs> This is where economy goes. But the question is, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go with this? Are we supposed to return to an agrarian culture? You know, when we say, what about those lessons that God knew that our children could only learn through an agrarian culture? 
You know, you can take the garbage out just so many times, you know. How about, how about the lessons it teaches our kids, you know? And are we somehow supposed to aim at planting ourselves in that culture, our children in that culture? What lessons can it teach? Well, it teaches one big lesson that you didn't cover the garden last night and it froze. Or we've got to do this because the times and the seasons are not ours. How are we supposed to connect ourselves and center our economy? I'm not saying we're all becoming farmers at all. It's been pretty much destroyed, you know? It's been industrialized. We're saying on a sustainable, small scale, can we not produce our own food? Not in a survivalist mentality, but in terms of God told us to go there, and there were reasons for us going there. Lessons that we could learn to bring us back to him. Amen. Should we go there? Well, we don't have time for that. You know, I, you know, I just didn't, I'm not going to plant potatoes because I can buy a sack of potatoes for $5, 50 pounds, you know, and I'm not going to do that this year. Oh, what are we doing? We're making decisions based on economy. Economy is driving our lives. Does anyone think it's strange that when a son now would say, Dad, I just got a job. It's in San Francisco. And, you know, I think I'm going to move there. It's a real great opportunity. Okay, goodbye. You know, go find your fortune. That would have been madness in another culture. But things economically driven and reasoned, they make complete sense to the economic mind where life has been made into commodities. The land is a commodity. Lives are now a commodity also. And that was written four years ago about big tech. The story is being written much bigger right now. I'm not even following it all, but it's down the road from what I just read, and we are all in big trouble if this happens. Where do we stand with these things? But then this thing, the pandemic, comes along. And you know, people are saying, hmm, 800,000 people exiting New York City, they say. What are people feeling today? Are they feeling like an exodus? Is there something stirring in people's hearts saying, you know, this whole thing, where it's going, I don't know about this. Are people questioning these things? I have... I have um, occasion to correspond with someone, Wendell Berry. He recently wrote me a note saying, he said, basically, it's not going to happen with agriculture. He said, I think nature is only left to laugh at us. I don't think so. I think the hope is the church. And the realization that God called us out. And what does it say? He brought us out to leave us to wander? He brought them out in order that, <laughs> order that, he might, he might bring them in. Isn't that incredible? He might. Well, who's the might left to? Who's that questionable might left to but us? Are we going to go in? He brought us out. Praise the Lord. He brought us out. But his purpose was to bring us in into all these truths that we're hearing and into a culture that fosters that relationship with him and try it if you never have. 
Try that culture with your children. See what it does to them. Another whole way of life. We are creating, and Brother Blair always said, we want to create a new culture, a new society, is what we're trying to do. That fosters that relationship with God. Amen. So I've given you some background of the myths and hopefully blown away some myths perhaps, but amen. Exciting what he's calling us to. You know, even living one time backing up. I'm, I remember the day Brother Blair and Pramus said, would anyone like to grow a garden? We don't know anything about gardens. Would anybody? And we, we start planting little, little postage stamp gardens, little things. What a wonderful start. And stand back and watch what God does with that to us. It's, it's truly a miracle. Amen. I don't know. Someone said to me, you know, my dad had me garden and I didn't like it. Yeah, it's just a drudgery. You know, that word drudgery, you've heard it applied to agriculture. So it's just a drudgery. <laughs> We're not talking about that. We're talking about, and they come here all the time, old timers say, oh, man, that was such a drudgery, I got off the farm as soon as I could. We're not, you don't seem to understand. We're not talking about that kind of agriculture. We're talking about a diverse, small-scale, manageable agriculture. We're not talking about monocultures. No, nothing like you see really out there today. We're talking about a small-scale relational life. Returning to society is what we're talking about. Socius, breaking bread together, friends. Friends.